Today's guest has been on my show several times within the past few years, and when I began the planning stages of my new charity, Patient Safety Anthology, the first person who came to my mind was Thomas Dahlberg. So today's conversation will be the basis for a chapter within the book that I've mentioned each week titled Highway to Heart, Humor and Honesty in Healthcare. Tom, he began his career within the walls of a community hospital as a transport aide, IV aide, and housekeeper. Here, he witnessed the impact of relationship and connection within a healthcare system on clinicians and staff, and patients and families and communities. Now, with over 35 years as a healthcare leader, including six years as the executive director of the Hygieia Foundation, a relationship centered care research institute, four years as the leader of the Parent Partner Program for the National Institute for Children's Health Quality, currently as the executive director of the Michigan Center for Clinical Systems Improvement, and also as a patient who himself was informed he would never work again and to get in line for a heart transplant. He continues to drive improved engagement, experience, clinical outcomes, and safety for all through a balance of heart and mind. Tom brings his strong knowledge base coupled with the ability to articulate his passion to position others to achieve their desired results and together to make healthcare better for employees to work, physicians to practice medicine, patients and families to receive care, and communities to thrive. He is also the author of The Big Kid and Basketball and the lessons he taught his father and coach, and through his writing and speaking is creating awareness of adverse childhood experiences and their impact on children and adults and putting an end to bullying. Tom recently contributed to the new book out of the UK titled Bullied Back to Life, which brings his message of resilience, leadership, human connection, and faith overseas. And in 2020, he expects to publish his healthcare book titled From Heart to Head and Back Again, A Journey Through the Healthcare System, and create a call to action for betterment for all. He is my hero and my friend. So welcome back to the show, Tom Dahlberg. Oh, thank you so much. It's a thrill to be here, to, to see and hear what you're doing to better care and, and improve safety, and it's my pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, Tom, I don't think I knew that you started your healthcare career as a transport aide, an IV aide, and a housekeeper, so you've witnessed a lot of changes, and you're not that old. <laughs> and I typically share that as part of my bio, because there's one particular story that really stands out for me, and it was when I was a transport aide. And I remember it was at Brockton Hospital in Brockton, Massachusetts. I was transporting a number of patients, but there was one elderly woman who I had been transporting for the last couple of weeks, almost on a daily basis. And I remember there was one day, and I needed to wheel her down for treatment for cancer. And I was wheeling her down, and and she said, Tommy, I'm cold. And I got her a blanket, and we got to where she needed to be. And she looked up at me, and she grabbed my hand, and she said, Tommy, I'm scared. Mm-hmm. My family's not with me today. Can you stay? And quite frankly, that is one of the things that really informed me as far as what, you know, we use the terms patient engagement and, and, and patient experience and all these things. And it's that connection that we all have the opportunity to make and to really truly engage with somebody with our heart and our mind, our skills, evidence, technology, all that stuff in that human connection Mm -hmm. that I learned back then that was so important. And I remember calling up to my department and saying, I need to stay with, I'm going to make up a name, Mrs. Smith, and I want to be here with her. She needs me today. 
and it was my boss who said, you need to be there. And so it was, it was a special and a really learning moment for me. Oh, I love that story, Tom, because I think it's going to resonate with anybody listening who has been a patient and hopefully for folks like the transport and the IV AIDS and the, and the folks that you typically think are just the ancillary people, housekeepers. I can't tell you what kind of an impression just their presence makes, their conversation makes, and how important they are to that total picture that the patient eventually leaves with. So true. I remember when I was with the National Institute for Children's Health Quality, and I was leading the parent partner program, and there was a, a woman I was working with, and again, I'll make up a name, Linda, and she was telling me a story that some years prior, she was in the hospital. She was at Brigham, and she has um, her, her daughter who has a sickle cell. This woman, my friend, is in the hospital. It's Easter weekend, and she's devastated. Of course, her daughter's in the hospital, so that's devastating enough. And it's Easter weekend, and they're very faith-based, and she wants to be home with her daughter with the rest of the family. And so on Easter morning, my friend's crying in her room, and she told me that that morning this custodian, they called him at that time, this custodian came in, knocked on the door and asked to come in, had met my friend over the last few days and got to know her a little bit, and he saw that, that my friend was crying, so he left came back a little while later, again, knocked and asked permission to come in, and then walked over to her, kneeled down, and handed her a bouquet of flowers and a stuffed bunny, oh. and put his hand gently on her shoulder and said, I'm here for you today. Oh, Tom. And so to your point, it's all of us. And, and here, you know, a lot of times we you don't understand the impact we all can make. Mm -hmm. This custodian understood exactly the impact mm -hmm. he could make. And he did. And he shit his heart. And I think I was told the story 10 years later. And now I think it's more, probably 15 years later. And that is still what resonates for this person, my friend, about that en encounter in the hospital, about the hospital stay itself. Her daughter got amazing treatment from the doctors and nurses, and they were wonderful. And yet it was the custodian, that person, that human being who connected with her at a hot level that really stands out for her. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. I hope this message really gets out there to folks who are working in hospitals to say, you know what? I am important. Everybody in that entire healthcare system is an important person to that patient. Thank you for sharing. This is like a little bonus. I didn't know we were going to go <laughs> go here. It's so, good. but you know what? These people were doing the right thing because they inherently felt like that's what they needed to do. That's what you needed to do. It wasn't because you were getting paid to do that or or you were told to do that. And and with that, I want to lead into the whole idea of the financial incentivizing behavior within healthcare. It's not a new thing, but but maybe relatively new. Hospitals get rewarded or not to a certain degree based on patient satisfaction survey scores. And I always wondered about the idea of paying somebody to do the right thing as if heart and honesty were not, say, in a provider's innate character. What are your thoughts on the advantages and the consequences of this type of system? It's a great question. It's incredibly easy to develop a financial incentive program. I say that because I've done it. I've worked in contracting. I've worked in healthcare for, like you said, 35 years. I developed pay-for-performance programs or P4P or what's now called value-based purchasing. I got to see what the impacts were. I got to be, quite frankly, part of the problem. 
because what we did was we said to people, we want you to care and we want you to care in a certain way and I'm going to give you extra money if you are going, if you will do that. And we believe that by financially incentivizing people to do so, they will therefore do it and life will be good and patients will be safer and we'll have higher quality and so on and so forth. What we did though was we, by doing that, we took again the hat out of healthcare. We started to now create a system where people were looking for the extra money to do the right thing as opposed to I'm doing the right thing because that's the right thing to do. And in fact, it's not only my experience, there was a um, an article in Harvard Business Review a few years back called Why Incentive Plans Cannot Work. And they also, through the research there, identified the downside, such as rewards like that, it's not a lasting commitment. I'm going to do what you asked me to do until you stop paying me to do it. So it's a temporary change. We might get the, a bump or an improvement in safety or quality, which is great, but it's only going to be there while the money lasts. Mm-hmm. And once the money train stops, then the behavior changes. And now I'm looking or we create a system where people are looking for pay me again and I'll do the right thing again. What also happens is, as I mentioned, it takes the heart out of it. And that's my language from Harvard Business Review. They start talking about people become less interested in their work and start to require extrinsic incentives to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And so again, it leads to adverse impact. It's easy. It's some might even say it's sexy as new financial model. And again, I've done them. I love a good financial model. But at the end of the day, it does not create the longitudinal change we're seeking to help people, not only the patients and families, but to allow the physicians and the nurses to reconnect with their heart and do the right thing because it's the right thing to do only, not because I'm getting paid extra to do it. Again, it's easy. You'll get a quick bump. But at the end of the day, it's not going to really help the communities we all seek to lead and serve. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. So there's been limited success. And I think this is in part because patients have not been empowered with any kind of meaningful or actionable information to even inform their decision making. The patient has a voice after the fact. Patient satisfaction survey score comes six weeks later. They're not able to speak when it's happening. So what can we do to create a more relevant system of communication at the point of service? Before I answer that question, you made the point about people, uh, patients don't have the opportunity to speak at the time. What I've also found, oftentimes, they're afraid to. Mm-hmm. They're afraid there'll be adverse or there'll be repercussions if they say, this just happened to me and I'm, and I'm scared or I disagree or it was harmful or it led to the wrong outcome or whatever terminology they might use. They're afraid to say it. So only on the back end, which is oftentimes, like you said, months later, they get a survey. They might put truth in there. They might not. But if they do, it's so far disconnected mm. from what actually happened. The real solution or something that could actually take place and ha- to make things better isn't going to. So it's that part of the system is broken as well. Mm. We need to create a system which creates safety. And yes, I do mean patient safety so they're not being harmed during surgery and so forth, but also patient safety where they do feel safe to tell their truth. And also a system which allows physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists and the people at the front desk safety so that they can tell their truths. Mm-hmm. They can tell the truth when something's not working and not feel an adverse impact. 
They need to feel safe that they can say it so we can fix it and make things better. We need to create systems which allow for that honest communication, that that human connection, and that understanding that we're all humans and we're all going to make mistakes. And yet, together, we can actually improve upon these mistakes. But we have to allow for that that safe place to have that happen. And the only way to do that is, quite frankly, to do it. Oftentimes, we're saying, oh, we need to build this this new protocol and this new policy. What we need to do is when something arises and someone tells us, let that person know we appreciate them. Mm-hmm. We appreciate their honesty and their transparency. That's the buzzword we hear all the time now. We need to be transparent. And then not punish, but rather listen with a heart and a mind from the point of view that we're going to make things better and we're going to make things better together. We have to do that starting right now. We needed to do it 30 years ago. We need to allow for people to tell their truth, find out what's working incredibly well and say thank you and find out what's incredibly broken and fix it together. It's the only way. The biggest barrier to improvement is not getting started. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start right now. Mm-hmm. We can fix, we can develop the tactics and policies and all that after that. But let's start now by listening, not punishing, creating safety and making things better. Thank you. Sometimes I get so tired of all the, the conferences and the chatter and the talking and everything. It, it seems relatively simple to just to create a culture where there is safety in transparency all the way around, whether it's patient to provider, provider to provider, nurse to doctor, I mean, whatever, just to feel that it's an open an open home where you could speak your truth, as you said. And you know, Tom, before you came on today, I was thinking maybe we have the wrong expectations, maybe of providers. Do people really go into medicine because they love to interact with people? I mean, is that the kind of personality that goes into medicine? Maybe we are expecting people to behave in a certain way that is really not inherent to their personality. Does a doctor become a skilled surgeon? Is that already somebody who has high social skills and been hanging around with groups of people? Or is it more of a loner by themselves, very intense? Maybe we're expecting something that just can't happen. You know, I think that's an incredibly poignant point, and it aligns to a discussion I had actually just last week. Last week, we're at this strategic retreat, and we're having this discussion about is similar to what you're talking about, but with our patients, about patients. And we're saying, well, our expectation is they're going to do what's logical. Well, guess what? We're all human and people are going to do what they're going to do. And we need to be aware of that and understand that and stop judging, but rather discern and understand and do what we can to understand. And same thing, if we have a surgeon that's a great cutter, but not great um, bedside manner and so forth, we need to teach them. We need to help them get past that. But we also understand that they are who they are. Do we allow for it or not? And if we do, what are the rules of engagement? And if we don't, what are those rules of engagement? Let's just make those decisions and stop processing mm-hmm. it. I've read any that culture change can take between three in seven years mm. to, to happen within organizations. I do believe that because I've seen it, but I think it's because we're going about it the wrong way. We need to immediately start to make the change. I remember Don Berwick at IHI a few years back said something like, and I, and I think I have this right, we need to go to scale now. We can't wait anymore. Too many people are being harmed. And I don't know if he was simply saying that to get reaction or if he truly believed it at that time. From a quality improvement perspective, that's not necessarily the approach you take. And yet I I understand the message. Again, if I have it right, I understand the message. We can't wait anymore. 
we need to start acting right now. So again, if it's a surgeon that's a great cutter and needs to improve in certain areas, thank him for being a great cutter or thank her for being a great cutter and help them improve. That would be my philosophy. Do it now and, and stop waiting. Exactly. What have you found as far as you say, let's teach them how to behave or communicate with empathy and heart? How do you teach that? Or how do you get somebody to come to the table to say, yes, I realize I'm terrible at communication. I need help. Do people realize that and say that and come willingly to training? I'd like to answer it a couple of different ways. First of all, um, a lesson I learned from my son. So my son you mentioned a book I'd written, The Big Kid in Basketball. It's about bullying. And my son was a child who was bullied by adults. And now, years and years later, you know, he's seeking mental health treatment. He writes about that. He talks about it on a podcast. And, and he also wants to help others. And one day he was telling me, he says, Dad, I want to help people, but I'm not exactly sure what to do. And we, and we talked and we talked and we talked. And then he went off and he processed some more. And he came back to me and he said, you know what? He said, Dad, I may not be an expert and I know I'm not. But what I can do, and I can do always, is I can love somebody. Mm. I can be present and love them and listen to understand them. And I think that's a huge part that we, a lot of us say, oh, that's not important. Oh, that doesn't belong in healthcare love. What is that all about? What we need is technology and pharmacy and so forth. Yes, we do. And I would also say we need love. The other way I want to answer that question is when I was working with a VA, I remember I was training people on heart and mind communication. I walked into the training room. I had greeted people at the door, and now people were seated in, in, two at a table. And I'm walking up to the front, and I had people, as they came in, they grabbed the evaluation form. And as I was walking up, I saw these two men sitting at this one table, and I see that they've already completed my, my evaluation. A 10 is good. They've given me zeros. We haven't started the, the class yet. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this, this is going to be a tough audience. <laughs> and so I, one of them leaves almost immediately. The other one stays. And so this training, it included didactic, but also there was role play and partnering up and so forth. And of course, he's alone now. So when we get to the place where we're partnering up to work through some of this hot mind communication, I walk over and I kneel down and I put my hand out to shake his hand. And he shakes my hand and he looks at me and he says, do you see this? And he had a shirt on and it was all like unbuttoned, the first couple of buttons at the top. He says, you see this? And he's pointing to a scar yeah. on his chest. I said, yes, I do. He says, this is where I was shot in Afghanistan. And then he points to his arm, and he has his sleeves rolled up. And he says, do you see this? And it was another scar. I said, yeah, I do. He says, that's where I was stabbed. He said, you're teaching me or trying to teach me hot mind communication. You're trying to teach me how to connect with my own heart. I was taught to kill my own heart so that I would survive. Oh. And it was it was unbelievable. And the message that I learned from that moment was we need to take the time to understand our people, the doctors, the nurses. This, ha this person happened to be an engineer within the hospital system, within the VA. We need to understand where they're coming from. I have no idea what he experienced mm -hmm. and what he was bringing to the table. And I'm assuming the person that was with him had a similar story, and that's why he walked out. He and I spoke for a long, long time. And then afterwards, he came up to me and he shook my hand and he said, Tom, I'm going to go get help. I know I can't live like this. It's not living. The message is, again, we have to understand where people are coming from. We have to love them. We have to meet them where they are. We need to fan the flame of whatever goodness they have within them and help them find the rest of it. And we're going to 
stop waiting for the next big silver bullet, which typically is a new financial incentive, and we need to bring love back into healthcare. Mm-hmm. I like to call it health caring and really reconnect with ourselves and our own hearts and with others and then use the evidence to drive the understanding of where we need to go, how we can get there, and together do so. Oh, wow. What a moment for you there, huh? What a learning experience for you. It certainly was. I thought, oh, yeah, I have all the right answers. Mm -hmm. I've been trained in this. I've been doing this for years. I can... No, I didn't, and I don't. And we need to make sure that the hubris that we Mm -hmm. have, we leave at the door and we're humble and we're open and we're ready to learn at every given moment. You know, and that ties in so beautifully to the thought of humor in healthcare. And when I say that, I don't mean that somebody's coming in and juggling or telling, you know, off-color jokes and crazy clown suits. I'm talking about hubris. I'm talking about a physician or a nurse or a provider that comes into the room and loses that self-importance and realizes with a bit of humor that they're just another person like the person in bed. Again, to help humanize that experience. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, there's that great Robin Williams movie, uh, Patch Adams, who's about a real person, how accurate the movie was. But I think that's a great example of, again, having the emotional intelligence and the uh, self-awareness and the, I can even say, servant leadership perspective to understand that that person in that bed is as big of an expert, in fact, probably even more of an expert on their own health than me as an administrator or a physician or a nurse, and same thing with a parent who has a sick child. Who knows that child better than the than the parent? It's bringing that humility that allows us to listen so that we together can make things better. And sometimes it's specifically, you know, we bring humor. And sometimes it's that listening to understand and really connecting and being willing to say, you know, I missed it mm-hmm. and I can, get, I can do better. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Tom. You always have such wonderful stories that exemplify, (laughs) yeah, that exemplify what it is that we're talking about. Oh my gosh, so much more I wanted to talk with you about, but we're going to begin to wrap up. Is there anything specifically, though, that you wanted to bring up today that we didn't touch upon? Just one last quick story. Just this morning, working with my team here at MICSI, the Michigan uh, Center for Clinical Systems Improvement, and we were talking about how we can improve within the system. And So often, without me saying it, people were saying, we need human connectivity and we need to be able to position people to make that connection. And I just love how more and more people are understanding all the other stuff is important, the technology, the pharmacy and so forth. And it's the humanity that really brings it all together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. I think we're poised for a change here, don't you? I certainly do. do. You can see a groundswell coming. All right. Where can folks go then to learn more about you, purchase your books or contact you? People can go to TBKID, so tbkid.org, regarding the adverse adverse childhood experiences and the the bullying in that book. And I can be reached at uh, dahlborghlg at gmail.com, and they can ask me any questions about healthcare, bringing heart back into healthcare, healthcaring, and uh, quality improvement. Excellent, excellent. Well, before we head out, any final famous Tom Dahlberg words of advice to share today? I would say, take a moment. Celebrate your wins. Pat yourself on the back. Understand you always need to improve, but don't forget, recognize that you're doing your best and just keep at it. People need us and never stop. 
I love you, Tom Dahlberg. (laughs) (laughs) I love you, too. (laughs) Thank you so, so very much for sharing you once again with with our listeners and our readers. I just so appreciate you. Thank you. And thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for the book you're putting together. I know some of the people that will be in it. And it's going to be an incredible message. And it's going to be impactful, no doubt about it. With you on board, it will be. Thank you so much. Pat, as always, thank you. It's always a pleasure. Listen to Pat Rulo and Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio. Stay safe from little-known healthcare and hospital hazards. To learn more, go to speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com.